Well, we're back in our regular afternoon series today after some time of being away. It wasn't even regular when we were doing it by live stream, really, <laughs> but we did continue it for a while that way, and we got up to question 18, and today we're in question 19, and uh, this particular section of the catechism, we're looking at the consequences of the fall of man. Okay, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God by eating the forbidden fruit, what were the consequences of that action? And we saw that when Adam did this, that he spoke for all of us who are his descendants. So that when he fell, all of his posterity fell with him. All the people that come from him. So we all fell at once and now we need deliverance. What we're looking at though is the consequences of the fall, which we began looking at particularly with question 17. So let's review some of these questions that... Um, we have most recently done. We'll, uh, I'll ask the, the question and then you uh, give the answer in unison. So, uh, okay, with question 17, we saw that there were two consequences for every human being. So question 17, into what estate did the fall bring mankind? The fall brought mankind into an estate of sin and misery. This was a complete reversal of our condition before the fall. Before the fall, we were, as the children's catechism says, holy and happy. That's how God made us. But after the fall, we were sinful and miserable in a condition of sin and misery, or as it says, the estate of sin and misery. So now questions 18 and 19 go on to flesh that out for us. Okay, the, uh, so let's recite these as well. Question 18. Wherein consists the sinfulness of that estate wherein to man fell? The sinfulness of that estate wherein to man fell consists in the guilt of Adam's first sin, the want of original righteousness, and the corruption of his whole nature, which is commonly called original sin together with all actual transgressions which proceed from it. Now, we looked at that last time, which, again, was some time ago. I think it was May 31st or something like that, around that time. We saw that even before we had done a thing, that we as part of the human race are already guilty of rejecting God and are sinful right to the core of our being. Although we're not as bad as we could be, or as we can be, sin has affected every part of us. That's what we mean by total depravity. So that there's no part in, in us that is not tainted with sin. We need the cleansing that only our Lord Jesus can provide. Cleansing both from guilt of sin as well as from the actual corruption, from the wrongness that is in us to make us more holy and more pure, more like Christ. Today, with question 19, we look at the unhappiness or the misery that came. So there's these two things. You see sin and misery. And last time it was, uh, it was sin with question 18. Today it's misery with question 19. So question 19, what is the misery 
of that estate whereinto man fell. All mankind, by their fall, lost communion with God, are under his wrath and curse, and so made liable to all miseries of this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. I know that spending time, as we have been doing, looking at the depths of our, how ruined we are is not the most appealing thing in the world to do. But as I told you, when we looked at the sinfulness of our fallen condition, it's important to look at the depth of the problem so that we won't settle for superficial solutions. That's a huge problem. When we see our sin is a superficial problem, then we rely on superficial solutions. Something that we could do in our own strength. And it's not adequate. We see how great our sin is and how great its punishments are. It will help us to realize that only Jesus Christ can save us. If we keep that in mind as we explore this hard subject, it makes it easier to look at. We keep Christ before us. So that the more we see how sinful and how miserable we are apart from Him, the more we delight in our Savior. And so that all that sin and misery doesn't doesn't depress us and discourage us, but it rather leads us to praise Christ instead of ourselves. The world is constantly trying to promote self-esteem. You praise yourself. And the Scripture is calling us, God is calling us, to praise His Son, our Savior, and not ourselves. We can even rejoice when we see how ruined we are because then we see what a mighty Savior Christ is. For our scripture reading, I've selected Isaiah chapter 24 because it talks much about God's judgment that He brings the misery of sin. So listen as I read this to you. It's God's Word, so it should be Uh, given great attention. Isaiah 24, beginning in verse 1. Behold, the Lord makes the earth empty and makes it waste, distorts its surface and scatters abroad its inhabitants. And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the servant, so with his master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller. As with the lender, so with the borrower. As with the creditor, so with the debtor. The land shall be entirely emptied and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and fades away. The world languishes and fades away. The haughty people of the earth languish. The earth is also defiled under its inhabitants, because they have transgressed the laws, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, the curse has devoured the earth and those who dwell in it are desolate. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are burned and few men are left. The new wine fails, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourine ceases, the noise of the jubilant ends, the joy of the harp ceases. They shall not drink wine with a song. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. 
The city of confusion is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none may go in. There is a cry for wine in the streets. All joy is darkened. The mirth of the land is gone. In the city, desolation is left, and the gate is stricken with destruction. When it shall be thus in the midst of the land among the people, it shall be like the shaking of an olive tree, like the gleaning of grapes when the vintage is done. They shall lift up their voice. They shall sing. For the majesty of the Lord, they shall cry aloud from the sea. Therefore, glorify the Lord in the dawning light, the name of the Lord God of Israel in the coastlands of the sea. From the ends of the earth, we have heard songs, glory to the righteous. But I said, I am ruined, ruined. Woe to me. The treacherous dealers have dealt treacherously. Indeed, the treacherous dealers have dealt very treacherously. Fear in the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitant of the earth. And it shall be that he who flees from the noise of the fear shall fall into the pit. And he who comes up from the midst of the pit shall be caught in the snare. For the windows from on high are open and the foundations of the earth are shaken. The earth is violently broken. The earth is split open. The earth is shaken exceedingly. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard and shall totter like a hut. Its transgression shall be heavy upon it and it will fall and not rise again. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will punish on high the host of exalted ones and on the earth, the kings of the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners are gathered in the, in the pit and will be shut up in the prison After many days, they will be punished. Then the moon will be disgraced and the sun ashamed. For the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his elders gloriously. May the Lord bless to us the reading of his holy and infallible word. You can see very much from this passage, what we read in uh, question 17 before, that our misery is not just the way that things are. Okay, when we, that, that is something that God brings. God is, it is the execution of God's judgment upon the earth because of sin. People like to think that things just happen, bad things like that. But Isaiah 24 makes it very clear. God is the active agent who is sending these sorrows and afflictions in his wrath against our rebellion. The Lord has done it. Though he uses Satan and tyrants to execute some of his judgments, God is the one who is over them all, acting as a righteous judge. So in other words, Satan when he does something to bring destruction, God is sovereign in that action. God is using it to bring judgment to his people, to punish his people or to punish the world, whereas Satan is using it to destroy. Just as it was when Jesus Christ was crucified, that Satan had his way, the Father in heaven had his way. Their reasons were very different. The same act, different reasons. God was sovereign over what Satan and the chief priests and 
all the ones that crucified Jesus, the Romans, had done. So I don't want to spend a lot of time developing all of that in the justice of God acting as a righteous judge today because our focus is on the consequences of his judgment rather than the justice of his judgment. So we will focus especially today on the misery that sin brings. Let's get underway. And looking at the misery and that the fall has brought upon us, we'll take our headings from the answer to question 19, which is our question today. So first, in the answer to that question, we're told that we have suffered the loss of communion with God. Now, do we really have to be told that? (laughs) Do we not know that we are estranged from God? This is very obvious, isn't it, that we don't know God, that the world doesn't know God as we ought. All you have to do is look at the confusion that's in the world about God to see that this is true. Some people deny that there is a God. And then there's the whole plethora of religions that are are everywhere that say this and that that's contradictory to each other about God. We, if we knew our Creator, it wouldn't be like that. As, as His creatures, we should all know Him. But you see, something has gone wrong. We have been estranged from Him so that we don't have communion with Him. The the Scriptures testify to that loss of communion that took place as soon as mankind fell. They tell us that before the fall, Adam and Eve were in the garden, and they tell us how they had communion with God. They walked with Him in the cool of the day, that there was a normal interaction. But after they sinned, they ran and hid from Him when He came to them in that time of day. And then He expelled them from the garden. They were cast out from the enjoyment of His presence, the place where His presence was especially made known. And now there is this blindness that causes confusion about God all over the world. People say, why are there so many different religions? This is the reason. Because we lost communion with God. We became blinded and, and separated from Him. We simply do not know Him unless He is pleased to reveal Himself to us. And indeed, one important aspect of God's saving work is that our relationship with God is restored, our communion with God. In fact, those who are redeemed are sometimes described as what? Those who come to know the Lord because we don't know Him. So when we're redeemed, we come to know Him. This restoration of communion with God is beautifully portrayed in the Old Testament with the tabernacle and the temple. When God's people lived in tents when they were in the wilderness and God was leading them through the wilderness to show that he was with them and among them, God had them build a tent for him to represent his presence among them and his tent was pitched among their tents. He told them to camp around, told them where to camp around his tabernacle. He was in the midst of them. I am now your God. You are my people. I am with you. He made that known. Communion was restored. And of course, he had all the ceremonies and things at the temple that showed how that communion was, uh, was brought about through the blood of the covenant for forgiveness of sins. We have to have the redemption and everything. And then in the, in the New Testament, in the fullness of time, 
Oh, let me, let me talk about the temple too. I, I, the tabernacle, there was also the temple. When God's people settled and, and received rest in the land, then God said, build a house for me here. And so they built a structure rather than a tent that could be moved. When they were in tents, God was in a tent. When they came into the land and settled, God had a house built there also to show that he had communion with them. It showed the same thing as the tabernacle but that he was with them, that he was in their midst. Then, in the fullness of time, he revealed his glory and communion with him through Jesus Christ. Then, God, the Son, became flesh and dwelt among us. He came as the Word of God to reveal God, saying, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And he walked among us, and he revealed the communion that we have with God by actually dwelling in our midst. The Bible says that he tabernacled among us. He himself became the tent of God that was with us. And now we approach God in his name. We have communion with God through our Lord Jesus Christ as a mediator. He's the one in whom we have all of the reconciliation. Communion with God is restored through Christ. John 17, 3, Jesus says, This is eternal life, that they may know the Father and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. Communion with God is what is restored to us by his saving work, because it was lost in the fall. This loss of communion with God is truly a tragic loss. Remember what we have learned all the way back in question one about our chief end, about our primary purpose in life. What is it? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. We were made to worship God, made with the capacity to appreciate the glory of God and the beauty of God, made with yearnings for that glory and that beauty that is found only in God. What a delight it was for us before the fall to be comfortable with God, to be able to spend our days loving him, praising him for his excellence and beauty. You know how we're still drawn to glorious things, beautiful things, mighty things, things that are excellent. These things have an attraction for us. But it is our misery that we no longer clearly see the glory of the one whose glory would be able to satisfy us for for all eternity. We can't be satisfied with the mere created things that reflect God. We have to be brought into communion and fellowship with God again. Apart from Him, we are miserable. Unless we have communion with God, we are empty. One of the main things that drew me to seek salvation when I was in university was the realization that God made me and that I didn't know Him. I met people around me that knew God, other than some of my fellow students. And I realized they know God. These people know God and I don't. It was a great loss. Our lives are empty without God. I ran from one thing to another before that, looking for something to pour my life into. But what I found was what Solomon says. It's all vanity. Chasing after the wind. It's empty. Worthless. Some people resign themselves to this emptiness and just try to make the best of it. You know, kind of, they they try to come to a kind of a noble carriage about it and just sort of accept it and bear it. 
Others keep on pursuing whatever they think will be glory for them. You know, winning a gold medal, getting rich, learning, you know, academia, being cool, being artistic, expressing themselves, whatever it is, some cause that they take up, and they pour themselves into that. And you talk to people that have, say, won a gold medal, and they talk about the letdown. Because what do you do then? What do you, okay, I did it, now what? You know, what do I have? It's, it's not such a big deal at the end. It's great loss when we don't have communion with God. That's something that never, is never, ever lost. Our lives are empty without him. So some people resign themselves to this emptiness. Others pursue whatever they think will make them happy. And still others fall into depression and just want to not to die. They realize that they have nothing to live for. So they turn maybe to drugs or to drink or to constant entertainment to ease the pain and to deal with the constant emptiness. When I was a young Christian, I read, when I read Augustine for the first time, there was a quote that I read in a little book that he had that, that really had a big impact on me at that time because it was so much what I had come to experience when I turned to Christ. He said, Neither he who lacks what he loves can be called happy, whatever it be, for he is tormented. Okay, so you got something you love, and you reach for that, and you can't have it. You lack it. You can't get it. So you're tormented. Nor he who has what he loves, if it be harmful, for he is deceived. That's someone that got whatever it is they wanted, but it wasn't the right thing. That person is deceived. He says, nor he who does not love what he has, although it be the best, for he is diseased. Someone that has God, but doesn't enjoy God, hasn't learned to enjoy and come to him. He goes on to say, God is our supreme good. We must not stop at anything below him, nor seek anything beyond. Now listen carefully. We must not stop at anything below him, nor seek anything beyond, for the first is fraught with danger, and the second does not exist. To strive after God, then, is to desire happiness. To reach God is happiness itself. And I hope that you young folks and you old folks here have, have learned that. You know, that you're not going to find what you're looking for in this world. The world is painted with glorious colors and it's all promoted and everything. But that's not where it's at. You can only find real happiness in the living God. The fall cut us off from that. It was a great loss. But the fall did more than cut us off from communion with God. The fall also brought us, as the catechism says, under the wrath and curse of God. That's what we saw in Isaiah 24 as well. Isaiah 24, 6, the curse that has devoured the earth. 
As I pointed out already, the problems in the world, the sorrows and the pain and the destructive storms, they are an expression of God's wrath and curse. They don't just happen. When we studied Genesis 3, we saw that when God expelled Adam and Eve from the garden, he also pronounced his curse upon them. We studied that a few weeks ago. We'll look at the particulars in that, that in just a minute. But here we see the terrifying fact that we're under his wrath and curse because of our sin. Psalm 711 says that God, the just judge, is angry with the wicked every day. I mean, it's one thing if you have a bad thing that happens to you that no one caused. But if it's an expression of the displeasure of God, that makes it all the worse. It's too much for us to face, and so we don't. We, 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 we deny it. It's too terrifying to think about that all the troubles we see in the world are an expression of God's wrath and curse. It's terrifying even to have a dog that's angry with you. It's even worse to have a judge angry with you that can put you away for life. But it's a million times worse to have God angry with you who can punish body and soul in hell. No one can deny that we have trouble in this world, but many people deny that these troubles are the expression of his wrath and curse. From my experience with atheists, this is the heart of their fear to acknowledge God. Their lack of desire to acknowledge God, their desire to deny God. If there is a God, then he's obviously angry with us, and that's too much for them to accept. It's too much for anyone to take who takes it seriously. Something we cannot bear until we come to see that there is mercy through the saving work of Jesus Christ. You'll never face it. If you are in Jesus Christ, then you're able to rejoice that God's wrath and anger is turned away. It's appeased. In 1 John 4, verse 10, John speaks of how the Father sent Jesus Christ to be the propitiation for our sins. He says, 1 John 4, 10, And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is not a word that you hear every day. Do you know what it means? It refers to appeasement, something to appease wrath and anger. Some theologians have wanted to take that word out of the Bible, propitiation, because they say God is not angry. If you read the Bible, you find that the Bible says very often that God is angry. Propitiation, something that appeases wrath and anger. See, it's like this. Because of our sin, we were vessels of wrath. Vessels where God was going to display his wrath and curse. He was going to put it on display. And God sent Jesus to stand over us, as it were, as our representative. And to have that wrath poured out on him instead of us, which is a remarkable thing. He said, punish me for what they did. This is why as soon as you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, 
God's anger is turned away from you. The anger was there all along. But as soon as you believe, the anger is removed. John 3.36 shows this that it, by saying that it remains on those who do not believe. It says, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides or remains or continues on him. It is removed only when you come to Jesus Christ because he is the one that removes wrath, the propitiation, the one who removes wrath for our sins. He takes away the wrath of God by taking it on himself. From then on, you are no longer under God's wrath and curse. You still suffer in this world under the sorrows of this world, but no longer is one who is under the wrath and displeasure of God. Now it is as those who are being shaped into the new life that God has called you to through all of those things that have come upon the world by God's wrath and curse. So that to you, those sorrows are now used by God to prepare you to live in glory, to change you and transform you. The sorrows are preparing you for the glory of heaven. Isaiah 12 is the great testimony of the redeemed believer. He declares, though you are angry with me, you know the rest of it? Your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For Yah, the Lord, is my strength and song. He also has become my salvation. This is one of the reasons that Christ's followers are often persecuted. <laughs> Do you realize that? Because we have the audacity to say that God is so angry with us that the only way of deliverance is through the shedding of the blood of his son. Our very testimony of Christ's wonderful salvation brings before men and women what they desperately are trying to deny. That they need that salvation. That they need God's wrath to be turned away. By confessing that, God's, that God was angry with us and that only when we came to Jesus Christ was it removed, we're telling other people who have not come to Christ that God's wrath is still remains on them. And they're offended by that. And they persecute us because of the cross. Their anger is actually rational in a certain way because it's terrifying to fall into the hands of the living God. And they, want to, they, want to, they don't want to think about that. It's irrational because you need to face it and because God has provided a way of salvation. Now we need to move on and look at what this wrath and curse entails. The Catechism speaks of three ways that God's wrath and curse is expressed. Okay, so we've seen that we have the, uh, the, the, the loss of communion with God and that we have under his wrath and curse that the troubles we have are an expression of his wrath and curse. Now let's see that God's wrath and curse is expressed in the miseries of this life, in death itself, and in the, in the pains of hell forever. We'll look at each one of these categories. First, the miseries of this life. What does that include? 
The miseries of this life include all the troubles that we have in this world. These things you experience every day in little ways and big ways. These judgments include sickness and disease, everything from cancer or heart disease to the common cold or an itchy mosquito bite. They include injuries, everything from paralysis resulting from a car accident to stubbing your toe on the table leg. They include shortages, things from severe poverty and famines to having the knitting store run out of yarn of the color that you're using to finish the project you're doing for Christmas. They include disappointments and failures, everything from a business failure that ruins your whole estate to failure to be able to fix something that you get your computer going again when it's not working right. They include difficulties with, with other people, from nations going to world war to quarrels at home or in your marriage or conflicts with your children. They include fears and confusion of mind, even things like horror of conscience. There are terrors and anxieties that people bear, very debilitating, sense of worthlessness, addictions, cravings, dissatisfaction, the list goes on and on. You can see how foolish we are in that when we experience these miseries, we're not humbled by them before God so that we repent. We ought to recognize that they are upon us because of our sin as a human race, and we ought to be broken and ashamed before the Lord. When there is a pandemic like the coronavirus or attacks by terrorists, we should see the wrath of God in it against our ungodliness and unrighteousness. As Amos says so clearly, we looked at this when we had a sermon on the coronavirus, Amos 3, 6, if there is calamity in the city, will not the Lord have done it? Do we see the source where this comes from? Too often we don't acknowledge God's hand. This is not to say that every trouble is a direct punishment from sin for sin. But in a society like ours that's turning away from God, a society that's increasingly violent and immoral, that is, that's full of greed and covetousness, a society that curses God and ignores His word, that's selfish and arrogant, that slaughters our own unborn children. In a society like that, do we have reason to think that the troubles that we have in the world are from any other reason than God punishing us, His judgments? And in our personal lives, if we're living in sin, we should consider the troubles that befall us a chastisement. God is mercifully getting our attention to restore us. And if we're living a godly life by God's grace, we should still be humbled by our troubles because we know that they originate from rebellion that we're part of in the world, in the garden. We should see that God sent them to humble us and to teach us. It's so wrong the way we deal with sorrows in the world today. So distorted. Those who are religious say, oh, God would never do anything like that. Those things aren't from God. That, God would never be cruel to good little people like us. Right? That's distortion. As if it would be unjust for God to send the affliction that he does send in the world. That's, that's religious hypocrisy. 
and those who are not religious deny God on the basis of the trouble he sends in the world. They say there are so many sorrows in the world that there must not be a God of justice in heaven. Does that make sense? If a judge sends you to the dungeon, do you say there must not be a judge because I went to the dungeon? The fact that you're in the dungeon is the evidence of the judge that sent you there. They're like the guy that's cast into prison and declares the judge doesn't exist. That doesn't make any sense. Troubles of this world are the evidence of a holy God. Not a reason for denying him. God complains at his people in Amos for not returning to him when he sent affliction upon them. Five times he says, I did this to you, some kind of affliction, and you didn't return to me. I keep doing these things and you don't return. It's sad to see how few have returned to God in the afflictions that we've had with COVID-19. But I should also say it's heartening to see that there are those that have returned to God during this time. Very, very thankful for that. Okay, those are the afflictions in this world. There are many afflictions in this world. Then there is the great affliction that we all face at the end of our time in this world. And that is death itself. Romans 6.23 declares plainly that the wages of sin, what you get paid for for your sin, is death. It was after the fall that God sentenced the human race with this very humbling judgment that we would return to the dust from which we were made. It's a great humiliation because death completely reverses what God did when he created us. When he created us, he took dust and he put it together and he formed the man, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and he became a living soul. With death, then the body decays again, it rots, it turns to dust again. We were not made to die. We were created to live and to have dominion over the earth, to walk over the dust from which we were made and to control and have dominion over it. But instead, with death, it takes dominion over us again when we're put under the ground, so to speak, when we rot and decay. Here you see a man that was once vigorous and robust, Commanding and strong, now silent in the grave, rotting away. This is an account, on account of our rejection of God. Death is unnatural. Death is painful. Death is horrible. Do not be like many fools today who try to say that it's natural and they laugh at the face of death. Death is the wages of sin. Judgment from God. Takes little children from their parents takes husbands from their wives and wives from their husbands, sometimes comes in a sudden unexpected way, sometimes in a slow, painful way, but it always comes. Death is inevitable because God has sentenced us to it. We who decided to use this world that God gave us for our own selfish purposes have the world taken away from us by death. It's completely just punishment. It's only in Christ that we can overcome death. He's conquered death as well. Not only did he bear our punishments, but by bearing our sins on the cross and then going to the grave, he was raised up from the grave, conquering death for his people. He promises that if we come to him, we will be given eternal life. Anyone that comes to him, doesn't matter what you may have done, if you come to Jesus Christ, he will receive you. Though we will die, it will only be as sleep. 
because he will raise us up again and give us the earth as our inheritance. Then we will enjoy true dominion of the earth again. We will walk on the earth from which we were made. But that's only for those who are in Christ. Others will be raised from the grave at the last day not to inherit the earth at all. They will inherit everlasting suffering under the wrath of God in hell. And that brings us to the ultimate expression of God's wrath and curse that he brings upon the wicked the pains of hell forever. The scripture makes it clear that judgment does not fully come until after death. Death is not the final judgment for us. Hebrews 9.27 says it as plain as it could be said, it is appointed unto man once to die, to die once. But after this, the judgment. Even death itself, you see, is not that judgment. God's judgment comes after that. The prophet Daniel made this clear as well, that eternal punishment and eternal life follow even the resurrection of our bodies from the grave at the last day. In Daniel 12, too, he said, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. It has become very popular today to deny that there is a place of shame and everlasting contempt a place of everlasting, eternal, conscious torment. It's not surprising that hell is something that those who have no hope would prefer to deny. And there are plenty of wicked ministers and even entire denominations that are ready to tell people what they want to hear to satisfy their itching ears. Instead of dealing honestly with the Bible, They study arguments to deny the eternality of hell. And there are some ministers who do not deny it, but who choose to never talk about it, which is a very wrong thing for them to do. But those ministers ministers are not at all like our dear Lord Jesus Christ. He loves people. And therefore, he warns us against hell more than anyone else in Scripture warns us against hell. He stresses that it is a place of eternal conscious torment. Jesus warns us about hell because he came with a passion to deliver us from hell by suffering the pains of hell from, for us. I remember a, an arrogant uh, young man who spoke with great confidence. He'd done New Testament studies And he said that um, Jesus never talked about hell in the Bible. And uh, I I was shocked. I was a young Christian. I said, where did you study? (laughs) Because there's so much talk about that. But because so many deny hell, I need to show you that hell is a place of eternal punishment. I'll only scratch the surface here. If you want a whole sermon on this subject, just about the eternality of hell, then you can look at question 29 from the larger catechism, the sermon that is on, is on that some years ago. But for any honest inquirer, the following should suffice to make it clear that hell is a place of eternal punishment. Okay, first, the book of Revelation is very clear about it. In Revelation 20.10 
There can be no mistake that hell is eternal. Words are piled on top of words to show the everlasting nature of this torment. It says the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The word torment itself is used to speak of a person who is very sick or in, or, or in torment because they're sick, or it's used of the disciples uh, when they were toiling at the oars in the storm at sea, or of a person being tortured. And then it says that this torment will go on day and night forever and ever. That's what you, that's clearly conscious eternal torment forever and ever. This is a place that was originally prepared, as it says, for the devil and his angels. However, the human race who followed Satan goes there with Satan unless they are, repent and come to Christ. Just four verses later, we're told, Revelation twenty fourteen that death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Death and Hades, talking about people that had died and were in the graves, that on the day of judgment, we read about in Daniel, that they're cast into the lake of fire. It's the second death. It's the same place of conscious everlasting torment that the devil was cast. The verses that proceed in Revelation 20, 11 through 13 show that this casting of the dead and buried into the lake of fire is the outcome of the judgment. Everyone except those who are redeemed in Jesus Christ is cast there. Verse 15 says, this is Revelation 20, 15. And anyone who is not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Jesus also teaches that hell is a place of eternal conscious torment. In Matthew 25, 41, he shows us that it is the place that was originally prepared for the devil and his angels, just like we saw in Revelation. Matthew 25, 41, he says, it says of him, he's talking, then he will say also, I'm sorry, then he will also say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting aeonios. That's the word everlasting. The eternal everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. It's the same place that's spoken of in Revelation. The place where they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Note that he also refers to it as everlasting fire. In verse 46, Jesus makes an even clearer statement that this torment is forever. He uses the same word, Ionios, to refer to the duration of the punishment that he, used to refer, that he uses to refer to the duration of life. Matthew 25, 46. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. You say, well, there is a word everlasting and eternal, those different words. No, in the original, it's actually the same word. In English, they changed the word just for variation for style, but they, it is the same word. So the everlasting punishment and everlasting life are both equivalent. They're everlasting. In Mark 9, Jesus indicates that hell is eternal by calling it the place where the fire is not quenched. 
9.43, he says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell into the fire that shall never be quenched where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Think about that. It's eternal. You've been there for a thousand years and there's still far more than that to go. On and on and on and on. So it is with the glory of heaven as well. On and on and on and on. This passage also makes it clear that hell is worse than going through life crippled or or blind. The sufferings of this present life the Bible teaches, do not compare with the sufferings to come. Sufferings of hell. In the parables, Jesus often speaks of hell as an everlasting fire. In Matthew twenty-two thirteen, the king instructs his servants to take the man without a wedding garment and to bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And in the parable of the tares in Matthew 13, 41 through 43, he explains that this is the furnace of fire where the Son of Man will instruct his angels to cast the wicked at the end of the age. And again, he describes it as a place of ongoing suffering. So you see that the misery of our fallen condition is very serious. It's not a light matter. It's a very serious matter. It's not at all helpful to avoid the subject or to deny the subject. The Lord is very angry on account of our sin. And there is nothing trivial about his wrath and curse. This is something about which everyone must be warned. John the Baptist, in his ministry, went around saying, flee from the wrath to come. This is something from which you must escape. And we've seen there's only one way to flee from the wrath to come. One way. And that is to come to Jesus Christ. It's what John preached. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. Not just the water ritual. But the water ritual with faith in the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit and the one who cleanses us by joining us to Jesus Christ in faith so that our sins are forgiven, who washes away our guilt and who washes away our defilement, who alone can do that. John said, I baptize with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He points us to him. Where are you going to get cleansed? if not from Jesus Christ, from your sin. What are you going to do to wash away your sin? You just hope it goes away? Hope that God doesn't notice it? 
You can't do that. Only Christ, the shedding of his blood, he died so that we can be forgiven. And by calling on his name and trusting in him, then we will find mercy. When we see God's wrath, we can see how important this is that we find that forgiveness. And we can see what a marvelous thing it is that Jesus suffered the pains of hell for us. He took all of that punishment. He said, punish me for what they did. And when we trust in him, then what he did is counted as if we had done it ourselves, if we've already borne that punishment. We're set free. And we see the glory of God in punishing Christ. And we see the glory of God in punishing sinners in hell. Both display the wrath and curse of God. We see the glory of God in forgiving because then the mercy of God is displayed. Here, God has sent His Son in order that we might live. Suffering at the hands of God then is no subject to avoid or deny. It's an essential aspect of our faith. Meditate on these things. They are real. It will enrich your faith to face the reality of God's judgment so that you can know the reality of his mercy and grace. Please stand and let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are a God of wrath and judgment. You are a holy God. You're not a God who looks at sin and says, no big deal. You're a God that looks at sin and you bring your wrath and curse down upon the whole world on account of it. Not because we don't deserve it, but because we do. And Lord, our judgment is so skewed that we don't, we don't recognize what we deserve. How can we? We're the perpetrators. We're the ones who have, who have done these things. We're in no place to judge. We're in no place to make that conclusion or that decision about what should be done. We're the ones that did it. But we praise you that you are a holy God. And Lord, that you do not tolerate sin. If you tolerated sin, you would not be a holy God. We praise you, Lord, that you sent Jesus in order that he might bear our sin, that he might be the propitiation for our sins. We thank you that that he was punished in our place and that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Lord, open our eyes to see clearly the depth of your judgment and at the same time the depth of your mercies that we might rejoice in Christ, that we might embrace him and receive life through him. We thank you, Lord, for the hope that we have and that it is a real hope. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. May the God of all grace, who called us to eternal glory by Jesus Christ, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, and may he give you peace. Amen.